Now on this day, you may find some slick lawyer who can get you off. But God was there when you lied. God was there when you committed adultery. God was there when you stole. God saw it all. There's no escape because there's no excuse. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In a message entitled, The Deadliest Sin in the World, from our study of chapter 2 of the book of Romans, we've looked at the Apostle Paul's warning to those who don't think they fall under the category of sinner. And as we pick up, Dr. Brogy notes that we are now in a postmodernist culture and that it's become improper for people to judge others in relation to sin. On both Paul and Christ teach Christians that we are not to be judgmental. They are not saying you are not to be discerning or discriminating. Listen, there are certain things that God has said is, are wrong. And we need dads and moms, preachers, men and women to stand up and say, this is wrong or this is right. Listen, adultery is wrong. Premarital sex is wrong. Drunkenness is wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. Abortion is wrong. Murder is wrong. And it doesn't matter what the politician is saying in our day. That's not my judgment. That's God's judgment. He has spoken. We are just echoing precisely what he has said. But to take a stance in these last days against theological or moral error, people will say, well, judge not lest you be judged. And so we have a generation of young people who are being sucked down into sin and we need some people with some backbone who are willing to stand up and to say what is right and what is wrong. Now scripture must interpret scripture because the best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. This is not a requirement when he says judge not. It's not a requirement to be blind. It's a plea from the Lord to be generous towards people. He's not telling us to, to cease our ability to evaluate. Again, that's what makes us different from animals among other things. We're made in God's image. Now go back to Romans chapter 2. Paul is demonstrating here in Romans 2 that the moral man who nitpicks over other people cannot say that he is innocent because he understands the standard and in saying what you're doing is wrong, he has laid out the standard. And when he lays out the standard that he fully knows and he doesn't apply it himself, then he is in essence bringing his own guilt upon himself. So, number one, the respectable sinner is warped in his thinking. Number two, the respectable sinner is guilty of hypocrisy. The respectable sinner, the moralist, is guilty of hypocrisy. Look now at verse two. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Would you circle those two words? We know. Again, it's the same argument the apostle made in chapter 1. The similarities between the moral man and the pagan man in chapters 2 and chapters 1 are plain. Both groups have a certain knowledge of God as creator and judge, but both groups contradict that knowledge by their behavior. 
Now the depraved Gentile we read of in 132, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, they give hearty approval to those who practice them. But here of the moral man, Paul says, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. So what's the difference between these two groups? Well, the first group does things that they know to be wrong, and they give hearty approval to those who would do it with them. Whereas the moral man, the respectable sinner that Paul addresses in the first half of chapter 2, he also knows to be what is wrong, but he condemns other people who do the very things that he is guilty of. And again, that is hypocrisy. And may I say that our fallen Adamic nature loves to do this. We're often very harsh in our judgment of other people when we are very lenient towards ourselves. There's a, there's a certain satisfaction that our fallen nature gets when we drag other people down because it gives us a chance to lift ourselves up. It may be slick, but it's sick and it is sinful. Do you remember what the Lord said in, again in Luke 6? The same illustration that he gives in Matthew 7, but he gives a little more detail. So let me read it to you. And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Of course not. Will they not both fall into a pit? Yes, they will. A pupil is not above his teacher. But everyone, after he's been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Implication, as his disciples, we are to emulate him. So he says, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And so the Lord, as he often does, uses hyperbole to drive home his point so you cannot miss it. The word for speck, karphos, is used of a little tiny splinter. Whereas the Greek word that's used for log, dokos, is used of a large beam like a joist on a house. Now, think about it. Both the splinter and the large beam are made out of the same material. So they have the same problem. One has a bigger problem than the other, but they both have the same problem. So here's Jesus where he has this man with a telephone pole sticking out of his eye. And he's trying to come and point out the speck that's in your eye. Hey, brother, you got a little sliver in your eye. And his point is, is that we have this tendency to go around nitpicking when we need to be plank pulling. That's his point. He's describing a person who's practicing what I call spiritual ophthalmology. Question, do I have a little speck of dirt here in the corner of my eye this morning? You say, I don't know, pastor. I'm not close enough to see. I can't get that close from where you're standing. Listen, it would be ludicrous for you to definitely say that I have a little speck in my eye when you are so far away. And so Jesus is saying here, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in, uh, take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. And that's what the hypocritical tend to be. They're hypocrites by the way they act. They're looking for something. People come to church. I call them speck hunters. They come to a church looking for a problem. And listen, if you came here this morning to find fault with this preacher, to find fault with some nursery worker, some choir member, some greeter, you will find it. 
because we are a collection of sinners just like you. But I want to tell you, if you came here this morning looking for God, you will find him too. And so Jesus is saying something that is often overlooked. He said, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, unfortunately, some have concluded from the parable of the foreign body that Jesus is saying, mind your own business. There's never a time to deal with a problem in another individual's life. But please notice what he does not say. He doesn't say, get the log out of your own eye and then ignore the splinter in your brother's eye. No, in essence, he's saying, listen, confess your own sin, clean up your own life, get the specks out of your eye first, and then with clear spiritual vision, you will be able to help your brother. My father, as most of you know, was an eye surgeon. He practiced ophthalmology for 50 years, from 1950 to 2000. And people often on weekends or time when it was not appropriate, they'd come over to the home and dad would say, uh, there's a guy with a foreign body in his eye. Oh, it sounded spooky to us, a foreign body, ooh, you know. And, but it really was foreign. It was alien because that piece of dirt, that piece of metal didn't belong in the eye because it could cause damage and infection, and it would be less than loving if he had that skill to remove it, and he did nothing about it. And so too in the spiritual realm. If we are to be spiritual ophthalmologists, and there is a place for it, make sure that you do it properly. Make sure the speck is out of your own eye. Make sure your plank is out of your own eye before you go looking for specks in other people. And again, we are not forbidden to do this. There's a place to do it. When Paul writes the church at Galatia, he says this, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. The verse assumes that the person who is removing the speck is spiritual, that is his eyesight are, is clean, that he is a spirit-filled individual, that he doesn't go with an air, a spirit of arrogance and pride, but he goes looking lest he too be tempted. He goes with the spirit, there go I but by the grace of God. He doesn't go with the attitude, well, you're committing drunkenness, you're committing adultery, I could never do that. Friend, you go with that spirit and you are tempting the devil to tempt you. You go with a spirit of humility. And again, the word that he uses here for restore was a first century medical term of two bones that were out of joint that are brought together that there might be healing. You don't write him off as a rebel. Your attempt is to restore him as a brother. And so there are speck hunters in the church. Sometimes they come into my office and say, oh no, here he comes again. Speck hunter all over again. I don't want to hear it. Because I know their attitude is all wrong. They're judging things that they know nothing about. The respectable sinner, he's warped in his thinking. The respectable sinner is guilty of hypocrisy. Third and finally, the respectable sinner is worthy of eternal condemnation. Notice, if you will, verse 3. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. The implied answer to this rhetorical question is absolutely not. 
For this kind of behavior, for this kind of thinking, for this kind of talk, we bring ourselves under the judgment of God. Unless one repents, the end, the final outcome of the respectable sinner of the moralists is the wrath of Almighty God. Do you understand the line of reasoning? He's arguing here, listen, if our critical faculties are so well developed in the moral realm, so well developed that we can make a moral evaluation of other people, then there's no way that we can plead ignorance about God's moral issues. And so when we judge other people of the very things that we are guilty of, we're inviting the wrath of God upon us. I mean, do you really think that you can play God and point out the sins of other people and escape the judgment of God? Paul says, no, just as those in chapter 1 are inexcusably guilty, the moral man, as he will argue all the way through the first half of this chapter, is likewise inexcusably guilty. Again, no one can claim innocence when, when they have knowledge. They cannot claim ignorance. Do you suppose this, O oh man? When you pass judgment on those who practice these things and you do the same yourself, that you can escape? No. So Paul is saying to his reader, Mr. Moral Man, you've put yourself in the place of a judge. By the way, you condemn other people. But have you forgotten by applying the same standard to other people, you are in essence applying the same standard to yourself? Now the moral man would come back and say, listen, Paul, I'm not like the guy in chapter 1. I've never sat down and worshipped at some object. I've never committed adultery. Those folks are bad, but I'm nothing like that. I've never done those things. And Paul, like Jesus, is saying, listen, you have violated your own standard. Jesus said, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is guilty before the court. Paraphrase, the rabbis taught you shall not kill. But I say to you, while you may not have picked up the sword, you wanted the person dead in your heart and you're just as guilty. And so throughout that fifth chapter, they've said, or the word of God says, and he brings it to the spirit of, the, of reality. You've heard that it's said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman to lust at her has committed adultery in his heart. Paraphrase, you may have not literally jumped in bed with someone to whom you were not married, but if you wanted to, you're just as guilty. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever withheld something from God? Then the scripture would say, you're a thief. Listen, you can become a legalist and say, I've not committed the act, but it's the same sin just committed in the heart. And so Paul is saying, if you think you are so wise and moral that you have this argument against people whom you object and that you're going to get away with it before God, you are deceived. He is bringing the respectable sinner before God and saying guilty. The judgment of God, verse 2, rightly falls on them. And so in verse 3, they cannot escape the judgment of God. You cannot escape the judgment of God. Why? Because it's appointed for a man to die once. And after that comes the judgment. No one will be able to hide. God is omniscient. He knows everything that you've done. God is omnipresent. He was there when you did it. 
God's omnipotent. You cannot escape from the ultimate eternal judgment that he will bring. Now, in this day, you may find some slick lawyer who can get you off. But God was there when you lied. God was there when you committed adultery. God was there when you stole. God saw it all. There's no escape because there's no excuse is his point. You are without excuse, Mr. Moral Man. You are inviting the judgment of God. Now, again, this is a powerful teaching tool that the apostle is going to give the church among other things, to equip us in evangelism. When we think through every segment that was true in the first century of society that is true in this century. But understand the very sins that Paul is going to highlight in these first three chapters, he will highlight later in Romans and in other epistles of believers who can be guilty of the same things. It's really easy to read a text of Scripture like this and say, yeah, Paul, go get the moralizer. And not to apply it to yourself. But again, he's writing to the saints who are called beloved in the city of Rome, and by extension, he's speaking to us. So how do we apply this passage? Let me suggest three applications as I close. Number one, be careful of judging a person's motives. Be careful of judging a person's motives. Certainly, there are times when a person specifically states what their motive is, and you can evaluate that motive as you put it through the grid of Scripture. But very often, you don't have a clue as to the person's motives. Only God can read the heart. You cannot read the motive of the heart. Only God can do that. That's why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. God will judge motives at the judgment seat of Christ. And so Jesus, as we read this morning, said, Stop judging by mere appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Don't play God. Don't play the role of God the Holy Spirit. So that's the first application. Be careful of judging another person's motives. Number two, be careful of judging when your motive is to make yourself look better. That's a big motivation for those who are critical in the church. They always want to tear down leadership or tear down you because when they tear you down, they're trying to raise themselves up. They're typically very insecure people. Now, we studied this morning when Jesus said, do not judge lest you be judged. Again, most people would say, well, you, you, you can't evaluate anything. That's not what he is saying. But Jesus is saying, listen, make sure your spiritual eyesight is clear. Make sure you are not a speck hunter. Make sure that, that you're not playing spiritual ophthalmology when you're unqualified to do as such. And if you've not grown much in the grace of God, and this is one of the reasons I I want you to know Romans inside and out, backwards and forwards. If you miss a, a sermon, go back and listen to it online. I want you to know it inside and out because together I want us to grow deeper in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because people who have a shallow relationship with Christ will always tend to be critical, always buck against leadership in the church. Why? Because it makes them look more spiritual. And again, they are very insecure people. 
I love the story of Winston Churchill when he was sitting on a platform before a huge crowd of thousands of people. The chairman of the event leaned over and he said, you must be so proud, Mr. Churchill, that all these people would come and hear you speak. To which Churchill responded, and I quote, whenever I am tempted to be so excited about something like that, I always try to remember that if instead of giving a political speech, I was being hanged by the neck, the crowd would be twice as big. (laughs) So be careful of judging another's motives. Be careful of judging another person when your own motive is to make yourself look better, more spiritual by tearing another person down, third and finally. Be careful of judging others because often you do not know the facts. Christians, forget pagans, Christians are often guilty of jumping to conclusions and making a judgment before they have all the facts. You know, you cannot be a pastor without also being a counselor. And one of the verses I've claimed hundreds of times in 30 plus years of ministry is Proverbs 18, where he says, the first to plead his case seems just until another comes and examines him. In other words, sometimes a person will come into your office and they'll say, let me tell you what my wife is like, or let me tell you what my husband is like. You think, man, this person's a monster that you're married to, until you hear the other half of the story. And very often, we are very critical, very hard on our spouses when we fail to look at our own hearts. I tell people, listen, if, if your spouse is 98% wrong and you're 2% wrong, deal with your own 2%. Start there. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't jump to conclusions before you have the information, whether you're counseling someone or whether you're evaluating the situation. And usually, when you find yourself judging people before you have the facts, the reason you do that is because you're not a part of the problem and therefore not a part of the solution. Jesus said in John 7, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he was doing. I told you years ago about a lady who went into a restaurant while she was waiting for her flight. She thought, I'll have a little tea and cookies before they call our flight. And she went through the line and purchased it, and she sat down at that busy counter and laid her purse and her cookies next to her and her tea in front of her and sitting close next to a man, and she began to sip her tea. And before she could even open the bag, the man reached over and took out a cookie. Uh, she was a very dignified person. She wouldn't say anything, but she's like, he's got some nerve. I'm not going to let him, though, destroy my cookie. So she reached over and she took a cookie. She finished it before she was done. He took one. Then she took one. About this time, she's steaming on the inside, fuming. There's one cookie left, that fifth cookie. He reaches over, he breaks it in half, and he begins to eat it. She just picked up her stuff and headed towards the plane. While she's waiting for the door to be shut, she opens up her purse to adjust her makeup, and there is her bag of cookies. Listen. None of us is wise enough to judge another person, especially, especially when our spiritual vision is blurred. 
And I can promise you that you will never be brotherly as the Lord Jesus calls us to when there's a speck in your eye. And if you're not saved, you don't even begin to have the ability. You need to be regenerated. But I thank God when Jesus came into this world, he came with the Spirit to rescue people, to rescue people from the wrath of God. Man was already guilty. And so he said, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He was full of compassion. He didn't see Zacchaeus, that rip-off artist, and say, hey, Zacchaeus, you... Rip off artists, you skinflint. Come down here, I want to talk to you. I said, Zach, come here, buddy. I want to go to your house and have dinner today. If you've never been saved, don't play the judge because you're inviting the judgment of God. But if you have been saved, respond with other people in a gracious way as God has responded to you. We of all people, of all people in the body of Christ, ought to be the most loving, gracious people towards each other and towards a lost world. Deal in grace. Because that is how God has dealt with you. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father, we stand before you, some who are wearing the wrong shoe. Help us to take it off and to put it on the right foot. Help us to take the truth that we have examined this morning in the Word of God, not to be like those whom James says, just hear a sermon and walk away and do nothing about it, but help us to take a long, hard look at the law of God that brings a, a real freedom and to apply it. I pray today, Father, for the moral man who thinks he's good enough and help him to see that in his own judgment of other people, he's condemned himself, that he too is without excuse, and that he needs to flee to the cross of Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Help him in simple childlike faith to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And for those who have been redeemed, born again, help us to grow in grace. Help us to deal graciously with people as you have dealt with us. May this be one of the most magnetic places for lost people to come because of the great love that we have one for another. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his reputation. Amen. For a copy of today's message, The Deadliest Sin in the World, visit our website at searchthescriptures.org or download the Search the Scriptures app from the iTunes Store or Google Play Store and look up program ROM6. And of course, you can always order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478. Tuesday mornings at 11 Eastern, Dr. Brogy hosts a live call-in program in which he answers listeners' questions about God and the Bible. If you have a question, you can call 843-525-1859 and go live, or call that same number any other time and dictate your question, and we'll ask it on an upcoming program. That number again is 843 
525-1859. Tomorrow we begin a look at the judgment of the respectable sinner as we continue our study in Romans. Join us then as we search the scriptures.